0: Hello, and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast, episode 19. This is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas. And boy, oh boy, what an exciting episode we have today. Today I'm going to keep it, uh, I'm going to keep things short and sweet. I realize that I have a... Uh, I have issues staying on on topic and having a consistent flow of consciousness. But uh, that's why you listen to this show. If you want someone to read you uh, something coherent, you'll go watch old videos of drunk history or ancient aliens. But you listen to this show. So let's get into it. I uh, watched, uh, watched a whole bunch of stuff this week. And I'm going to focus in on one movie on this episode. And that would be... Uh, well, that's going to be Repo Man. But I'm going to get to that. Uh, let's go through everything else that I've watched. Uh, I became aware of became aware of a documentary that I I guess came out in 2019, but it completely passed me by, and I didn't even notice it came out. Uh, it's called The El Duce Tapes. And The El Duce Tapes is... There was this sort of um, aspiring actor in LA he's like um i mean he was essentially a commercial actor you know and he um became i don't want to say obsessed but he he was very much into the band the mentors and they're from the LA area i guess they're from Los Angeles and if you're not familiar with the mentors they are most people's worst nightmare when it comes to what a band can be. <laughs> they are, um, essentially a, they're a rock band, uh, with heavy metal elements and they are deeply misogynistic. They are deeply, uh, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk of uh, drugs and alcohol, and uh, promiscuous uh, sex, deviant sexual acts, and uh, violence towards women, men, children, inanimate objects. The list goes on. now anyone who's listened to the show uh, for any length of time is probably not surprised that uh, I'm a fan of the mentors their songs make me chuckle and the musicianship is it's not bad um But it's really the whole, it's the total package with the mentors. It's, they're incredibly offensive. And they're the type of offensive that make people squirm, as opposed to the type of offensive like, like, like an overtly racist white supremacist band is offensive because it's an overtly racist white supremacist band. The Mentors is funny because they say the worst things that you could say (laughs) and it comes off funny and I don't think anyone who listens to The Mentors really um, practices or preaches what uh, the singer and drummer, leader of The Mentors El Duce. Nobody, no one's, no one's prescribing to the El Duce formula of how to interact with women. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure somebody does out there. Um, but generally, no, it's just, it's just funny. It's just funny to say fucked up shit. It just is. And I know, um, I mean, I don't know, but I'm sure, uh, my audience is split uh, to, you know, there's a certain ratio of people out there who are a bit more um, progressively minded, and that's fine. And I think if they're familiar with the mentors or maybe they listen to this and they go watch the El Duce Tapes documentary, they would be horrified just in the first... Few minutes, absolutely horrified um that such a person like El Duce or a band like the Mentors existed in their lifetime. So and I and I totally understand that. Like I'm into all kinds of bands that would not pass muster in this, you know, world that we live in today. So but the El Duce tapes is essentially uh there you know, there's this dude who for about a year followed El Duce and the mentors around for I think total I think it was a year. And it was very candid. It was following the mentors on tour and their practice spaces, backstage at shows. Um, And I don't know how they know the director guy or the guy who, not the director rather, it was actually directed by two separate guys who ended up getting a hold of these VHS tapes and then editing it into a documentary. Does that make sense? So the actual dude who recorded it was one guy. And then the two guys who found the tapes and made it into a documentary or that, you know, so the original purpose of these recordings I, I were probably for a documentary, but the guy who actually shot all the footage never did anything with it. It just sat in a storage unit in a box for a long, like decades. So, <laughs> but it's wonderfully cut together. Like the way it was put together was there was no, um, narrative at all. It was just the guy held this raw footage and the filmmakers, the guys who actually cut everything together, um, really painted a, a very depressing, bleak picture about a musician who... You know, had some level of celebrity through their exploits. You know, not, not unlike Gigi Allen or, I don't know, who else was... I don't know, who else actually garnered that much attention, really? um, I want to... I you know, I wanna say like guar, but guar was wasn't quite taken as seriously. Uh lyrical lyrically, I think there was probably some I'm sure some parents got pretty pissed off <laughs> and um if they saw any of the uh all the like old school guar VHS tapes put out by uh Metal Blade Records back in the day, there was I had the uh tour de scum VHS. I know there was a one called live live from Antarctica. There was a bunch of them. Um I think they did one for the Ragnarok album, but I mean you you buy your kid in the 90s a uh, you buy him a CD and they have songs on there like uh uh baby fish fuck and <laughs> Uh, you know, shit like that. Um, It's, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I get it. Like I grew up at a time where there was kids at school who weren't allowed to watch the Simpsons. This is when the Simpsons was brand new and parents were just not about having their kids listen to the Simpsons or watch the Simpsons rather. So, you know, and that bled over to. TV shows, uh I mean, not only TV shows, but it bled into movies, it bled into music for sure, because the 90s was the fucking worst. You know, it was like the Satanic Panic era. It was, you know, parental advisory stickers on albums and shit. It was a complete shit show. And, like, everyone's fucking... Everyone was put on fucking notice. It was like it was rap, it was rock, it was fucking you know, it was jazz. <laughs> I mean, music. If you were a if you were on a major label back in the day, like you know you you could be fucking protested. Your shows could be protested. You're there can be, be um, you know demonstrations where parents stack your albums in a pile and light them on fire and smash them with hammers and shit. That was like real shit that happened. And it's just insane to I mean, I think it's safe to say that things have gotten worse. (laughs) I think the, here's the thing is back in the day. And this is, I'm just kind of like, I don't know. This is just like my feeling on the thing. Like back in the day, parents, religious groups, They were uh, kind of afraid of, um, you know, they were afraid of subject matter that was against what, was against what, you know, uh, their worldview. And because they thought that certain bands, certain genres of music would cause children, cause adults. To become violent, or uh, commit acts of violence, or you know acts of murder, uh, would turn your children, and children into drug addicts, and and alcoholics, and throw their lives away, and sell their souls to the devil and shit and um, and then. That was like the thought then, which seemed absurd. It's like, you know, music doesn't turn people into, you know, a murderous psychopath on drugs. And now that we've had 30 plus years since that era, I mean, and also I get it, like, fucking Elvis Presley, fucking... Bo Diddley, fucking, yeah, Little Richard. Like I, I understand that people have been going after rock and roll for a very, very long time, but I'm talking about specifically when cable news became a 24-hour thing and television became a bit more edgy. That like that era. Okay, I'm not talking about the 70s and people worrying about you know, you know, fucking hippies running around fucking spreading free love and uh, ample body hair and, and I'm not talking about any of that shit. I'm talking about specifically from the 90s on because that's when things drastically changed. That's when there was a hard pivot. And now that it is 2022, year of our Lord. I uh can say now as a uh as an old man that uh I think I think they were right. <laughs> I, th- I think that music uh not just the music but the the music, the lyrics, the artwork, the uh subgenres, the culture around extreme Uh, nihilistic music. Um, I think it very much uh, can contribute to people becoming drug addicts, alcoholics, murderers, uh, (laughs) uh, criminals, essentially. I think, I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure there's probably some type of fucking study done somewhere where there's actual hard numbers on the shit, but I think, that that type of those types of messages inside of music, uh, particularly rap because it's the most popular music, you know, it's like from like, you know, I'd I'd probably say the eighties, but definitely through the nineties to now, like rap is, you know, all forms of rap hip hop is like, that's the biggest most popular type of music, but, but I'm not saying hip hop and rap causes people to be fucking violent. I'm just saying that there's so much of it (laughs) that there's, there's a lot of crime (laughs) that are probably, I'm just saying there's a lot of crime. That's probably committed by people who listen to hip hop. I'm just saying you have, Music with a specific type of message, and I think people will take that to heart. And that being said, I think uh, rock music, all forms of rock music, and I even, you know, I include hardcore and punk rock, all forms of metal except maybe power metal, because power metal's for nerds. <laughs> but I'd say the more extreme forms, death metal, uh, grind. You know, gore grind, all that shit. It's like a lot of the messaging is deliberately negative. And I think most people like me who've listened to it, like I don't think it's contributed to me becoming a violent person because I don't think I'm a violent person. Uh, I will say that it probably hasn't helped with uh, my consumption with alcohol or drugs, to be honest. Like, I didn't, put it this way, okay? For some of you who are just like, Adam, what the fuck are you talking about? Okay, I'll tell you. How, every time you tried a new drug, I'm including alcohol and cigarettes and cocaine and marijuana and huffing glue and doing whippets and dabs and everything. The first person you did it with or the person you bought the substances from, or tried it with, were they straight edge? No. They weren't. They were people who've done it before. And I've, I've done a lot of drugs in the past. I don't really do drugs. I don't even really smoke weed anymore. Although I do like smoking weed, I just don't feel like fucking doing it. I just, I don't know. I just don't feel like doing it lately, but, oh my god, that's delicious. I made a nice hot coffee with some of my, uh, Still, Austin bourbon just splashed in there. It's fantastic. I will say that everyone I've ever tried drugs or alcohol with are, I don't want to say completely degenerate, but there's slightly less than savory people, let's say. And most of those people have very specific. Dare I say hardline views on what music is, what kind of music they like and associate with, and how it plays into their party life. Maybe that's just me. I I I'm, I say that knowing that it's not just me. You know what I mean? Like everyone I've ever, you know, fucking you know, go to a kegger in high school. It's like depending on what group you're with. It's like they listen to specific types of music. They're not listening to Beethoven. They're not listening to Pavarotti. <laughs> they're not, they're not listening to fucking Holland uh, Oates. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that I do think um, lack lack of a better term, kind of aggressive uh, or or degenerate music. <laughs> could uh could not 100% will but could lead to to bad um, possibly illegal behavior that's all i'm saying and i think anyone who's over the age of fucking 20 <laughs> who has you know um a handful of functioning brain cells would agree with me that being said it's like you know, fucked up music is fun. I like fucked up music, just angry, pissed off. I don't know, like, like, like. I like music that seems like it was made by a, a fucking mental patient. I do like music like that. It's not all I listen to, obviously, but um I don't know. It's like I, I do enjoy. Extreme people who do extreme music. I, I think that's interesting. No matter what genre it is. You know, even fucking old-timey music, you know? Fucking lead belly fucking... Like, kill some fucking woman or some shit. You know what I mean? It's just like... I was an extreme fucking dude. At an extreme time. But basically, the the the, the mentor documentary was... It was specifically about El Duce, and and, and it's actually very sad, actually. If you're, like, a Mentors fan, this documentary is cool in that you see all kinds of footage you've probably never seen before and interviews you've never seen before. But it's also, like, you see that El Duce was a... just... just an unmotivated, alcoholic... Mooch, (laughs) like, I mean, how accurate is that to reality? I don't know. El Duce is dead, so I don't really know. But at least according to the documentary, um, he has he was like a really gnarly alcoholic and was re- you know he was into drugs but it seemed like alcohol was like that was his jam and everyone in the documentary that they interviewed band members friends family members they're just like yeah he's a hardcore al- alcoholic and um there's a lot of kind of sad tragic pathetic scenes of like there was a scene of him at some party some house party and the 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 like the scene cuts in like in the middle of the party and it he's standing in the kitchen and it looks like he already vomited on himself he's got like vomit in his beard and his eyes are just glazed over just completely vacant like he's just blacked out you can just tell and someone someone's hand just comes into frame and just pours another shot of what looks like whiskey in his mouth and then. And then he just eats shit and hits the floor. And his fucking pants fall down. And then, like, some people drag him outside. And he's just, like, spread-eagle naked. And they're just dragging his naked ass across their carpet, which I I don't know. That, that's kind of gross. That is, I saw that. I was like, like, this is really tragic. You're watching somebody who's completely hitting... Uh, what alcohol alcoholics refer to as the rock bottom. He's hitting his bottom, uh, but it's also you know I found it humorous and uh, in in how tragic it was. I found it funny that he, someone was dragging his his uh, probably dirty ass across their white carpet. As <laughs> made me giggle. Uh, you know the documentary itself definitely. Uh, humanizes El Duce and the rest of the mentors and the people that were in that circle quite a bit. Cause you, you realize that they're just people and they're musicians with, you know, they're artists essentially. And I mean, what they do is what they did was controversial in a controversial music scene. You know, it's like the mentors played with metal bands and they played with, like, punk bands. And, you know, of the time, that sort of 80s, 90s era, and it's like, you know, they they were an extreme band in an extreme music scene. Like, they were... But it's like, that type of band doesn't really have... I don't want to say that type of band doesn't have longevity, but I'm not surprised that that band fell apart. And El Duce ended up um, suspiciously um, he he was intoxicated. This is the story, the official story. This is the uh, the official 9/11 Commission style official reports. Uh, El Duce was intoxicated, took a walk on some train tracks, and rather passed out on the train tracks, or uh, you know, was just walking on the train tracks and was hit by a train and it killed him. And that's how he died. And if you've ever seen the documentary uh Curtin Courtney It's a documentary that uh, is the the documentarian. Basically, he posits that, that Courtney Love conspired to have Kurt Cobain murdered. And basically staged Kurt Cobain's suicide. And... That is basically what Kurt and is about. It's a documentary about this guy who's trying to find out what, what really happened to Kurt Cobain. So, and in the documentary, he goes and talks, he goes and talks to El Duce. And because El Duce allegedly was approached by Courtney Love and offered $50,000 to murder Kurt Cobain and make it look like a suicide. That's what allegedly (laughs) took place. And, you know, and actually in the El Duce Tapes documentary, um, they briefly talk about this. And the (laughs) documentary has a lot of like kind of titles on the screen from time to time, just to kind of transition into things like, words will come up on the screen and kind of explain what's going on and where you're at sort of thing. And one of the things was <laughs> El Duce didn't murder Kurt Cobain. Do they know that for sure? I don't know. <laughs> maybe they, maybe they know El Duce's timeline of where he was and where Kurt Cobain was the time, you know, around the time that, uh, Kurt Cobain committed suicide. I don't know. But, um, I don't know. The, the documentary is interesting. It's, it's like, it's cut together really well in a way that I found to be, uh, I, I was, I mean, I was into it the whole time and it was just ended really sad. You know, it's like El Duce was this fucking kind of loser, drunk guy who was rather gonna fucking uh, his liver was a rather going to give out or he was going to go to prison or you know you know walk on some train tracks <laughs> Um. anyways for all you mentors fans out there that's uh, if you haven't checked that out check you can check that out it's uh, it was actually put out by Arrow Video which I was very surprised like oh, I guess I'm not that surprised Arrow Video puts out all kinds of Um, Schlocky stuff, um, but but of really good quality. I mean, some of it's like uh, you know, corny and whatever. But like they restore stuff really well. They restore movies very well and put them out in a in like nice packaging and artwork and shit like that. But um, what else? Uh, I actually watched my dinner with Andre, the 1981 film, the other night because. Excuse me I've always heard about the movie, but I never saw it. and I finally saw it <laughs> and I thought it was a, a it, it was you know there's I always I had a lot of hype you know like hearing about it and I finally saw it and I I, I liked it. I thought it was an interesting for the time type of movie and it's basically two guys sitting in a restaurant talking for you know an hour and a half how do i how do i describe my dinner with andre um what what can be said that hasn't been said a thousand times it's it's very much one of those movies that's analyzed and like pseudo intellectuals just gush over how brilliant my dinner with andre is but let me let me sum up my dinner with Andre. Okay, it's like one guy, Andre, is a wealthy, new agey, hippie optimist, um, and the other, Wally, believes in city living is the greatest representation of. Happiness and freedom meanwhile he's completely miserable. long story short, they're both wrong. <laughs> but you know um I think uh, like if you grew up in a rural area or in a small town, i like my dinner with Andre is probably completely un- it's just not relatable but having been somebody who grew up in a small town that went and lived in a large city like i i i get it like i've known people like these two and I'd like the concepts they talk about so basically andre ditches his um his his career and so they set up that andre and i mean most of the movie is just andre talking And Wally is just kind of nodding, saying, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. He's just kind of doing that for a good hour. And Andre, basically, he's like a theater director guy. And he gives up his career, and he just decides to go travel the world. And... You know, he's he's very much obsessed with, you know, performance art, and he's he's very much like a, like, a, you may know somebody like this, somebody who just travels the world, and there's just, you know, they get into, and this is like the 70s, so it's like a lot of his stories are kind of like these fucking hippy-dippy bullshit stories about being around actors and eh, people who put on, like, like performance artists around the world and and how it's basically listening to somebody talk about how fucking magical Burning Man was and how it changed their life. That's that's basically what Andre's talking about for a good hour. And... (laughs) And then, like, the last, like, like 25 minutes, 30 minutes is, like, uh, is Wally's basically, like, and um, he's just, like, there's nothing, like, your way of life is not feasible for most people, and it's unrealistic, and it's bullshit. <laughs> That's basically what Wally says. That's after politely sitting there listening and uh, I mean, sort of asking questions, asking kind of leading questions. And most of the conversation is Wally initially is very um, like, he kind of didn't want to go to this dinner with Andre, but he decided to go anyways. And he's kind of, um, and you may have seen people do this. You may do this yourself. um, And it's basically you get into, You're, you have to be in someone's presence and it's the, everything's awkward. So what you do is just ask questions. And I think everyone does that on some level. It's like, it's like chit chat. Talk about the weather. You know my, one of the, (laughs) my least favorite questions in the world is, um, uh, how are you doing? And uh, what is your name? (laughs) I have a infuriating reaction to those two questions. Because one, no one cares what your name is. And two, uh, no one cares how you're doing. They're just like disingenuous questions. And uh, it's like, I'd rather just start talking to somebody and then like, deep into the conversation, find out what each other's name is. And I've actually had conversations like that. I just start, I'll be somewhere and I'll just get into a conversation with somebody. And then like, you know, 20 minutes into the conversation, I'm just like, by the way, what's your name? <laughs> Cause I'm actually enjoying the conversation. And I just, I would like to know the person's name, you know? So, but, I don't know. It's 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 just not this movie's just not relatable, I, I I think to most people, just because Wally has this sort of this I he has this like like I don't know, this sort of romantic the, actually this is another thing that absolutely drives me crazy. I didn't even think about it till now, is people's romantic vision of New York city and where it's like this magical, wonderful place. Meanwhile, there, the person who's telling you this is a miserable asshole. You know what I mean? It's just like, there's like this, these two opposing things slamming into each other. You're like, Oh, if this place is, the greatest city on the face of the earth. Why are you such a fucking prick? (laughs) Like, and I've met lots of people like that. People who are from New York, people who just lived in New York a long fucking time and just sort of absorbed that fucking shitty attitude. You know, it's, I don't get it, dude. (laughs) I don't fucking get it. But They're also miserable. It'd be different if it was the place was amazing and the person was chill. You know, it's like, you know, there's definitely places I've been to that are like, that are amazing. Most people are super chill and, but they don't go around preaching about it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I lived in, there was, you know, I lived in Santa Barbara, for a short period of time. And it's a beautiful place. People for the most part are really cool. And, and it's just nice. It's just, it's just, there's nothing, you know, I I mean, Austin, I'm in Austin right now. That's like kind of how Austin is. It's like, was kind of, it's like this new kind of fucking chill, cool fucking city. And People in Austin were not fucking... Believe me, if you talk to anybody who fucking grew up in Austin, people in Austin are not going around telling the rest of the world how fucking awesome Austin is. It's other people who visit it, and that's why there's so many fucking people moving here. So, I think I've proved my point. <laughs> I don't know. Well, Wally has this very... He has this very... He wants the world to have he he wants he has this let's like it's all it's all about the the little things type of attitude it's all about like just waking up in the morning is amazing and and uh I wake up next to my wife and and she's great and I wake up in the morning and have a cup of coffee and i'm 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 optimistically looking forward to the day and all that stuff and And that, and all that's like, that's the real, that's the real good part of life, you know? And that's, that's the thing that anyone could, um, I don't know, not anyone, (laughs) but that, that's, that's what life's all about is the little things. That's basically what I interpreted Wally's perspective. That was sort of his counter to Andre's idea that, that there's this, that the world is this mystical, place and we're all connected through, uh, to, we're all connected, uh, you know, all humans, no matter where you live in the world, we're all connected to this spiritual oneness. It's and And that, and it's just like regurgitated hippie bullshit. You know what I mean? It's like this guy who made a bunch of money and now he wants to be this fucking enlightened hippie asshole. You hear that? You okay? That's my dog. If you know, if you if you listen to the show, you know that I have a uh, a 12-year-old pug with a collapsed trachea. And when she coughs, it sounds like Satan vomiting in the corner of the room. Anyways, after seeing my dinner with Andre, I was like, I get why people think it's so fucking awesome and shit. And I mean it it is I mean the, the conversation they have, they kind of you know, they talk about kind of like the meaning of life and like what is well like what is happiness and what is like you know, what's what is the meaning of nature and all all this shit, but it's like um I don't, I don't think I think the only thing that anyone would really relate to is is one uh Wally is seems like a pretty smart guy and but he's miserable. He's like this Woody Allen type character, you know, he's just like this um introspective but miserable guy and Andre's this sort of like reclusive like this you know like brilliant reclusive weirdo who you know he 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 had his heyday but he sort of like voluntarily dipped out of his theater directing career to you know go around the world and have these sort of like Holy Mountain, uh, Yudarowski fucking adventures, <laughs> and I'm sure that's a, appealing to somebody, but I don't know. I thought the movie was fine, but and but I think uh, you know the the main thing I got out of the movie was, and I think people could really get a lot out of it nowadays. I know I sit here and just fucking bash the movie and be a jackass, but I think my dinner with Andre is a good example of two people who have a pleasant, respectful rapport, who have opposing ideologies on life, who are able to politely sit and listen to each other and kind of critique each other's point of view. And they don't come to like a consensus or anything. They just sort of silently politely disagree with each other and over a nice dinner. And I think that's, there's something kind of beautiful about that. What else did I watch? (laughs) I'm going to move on from my dinner with Andre, but, um, I do want to bring up one thing. Um, I did watch this thing called uh, My Breakfast with Blassie. (laughs) And it's basically this, it was shot in a, it was this restaurant chain that I don't know if any locations actually exist anymore. Uh, When I lived in Santa Barbara, actually, (laughs) in the early 2000s, there was one that was like right on the water. And it's this restaurant chain called Sambos. And Sambos doesn't exist anymore and people attribute it to being this awful racist restaurant chain because their mascot was like, it was like a little, I I guess it was a boy? I don't know. It was like this little cartoon guy wearing a turban and his name was Sambo. And... I don't know. I'm not old enough to have ever gone to a Sambos. I don't know how really offensive that character really was. I don't know if it's a uncle Ben's aunt Jemima type situation. Do You guys remember that? Does anyone's memory? Yeah. Does anyone, anyone remember back a year ago, year and a half ago when, um, this is even crazy to think about now. Like just saying it out loud feels crazy. During the pandemic that we're still, I guess, living through right now. I don't know. I've kind of just ignored the pandemic. Like, I just don't care. Like, I don't wear a mask when I go out. Um, I just don't give a shit. <laughs> I already had COVID. Now I'm fine. So I guess I have antibodies. I don't know. I'm not one of those people who, like, pretends that they know anything about medicine or virology or anything. Like, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't know. I know I got sick, I tested positive, and now I'm fine. So, I don't know. But during the pandemic, like the height of it, is it Aunt Jemima or Mrs. Butterworth? I think it was Aunt Jemima. One of them. Whatever. Was It was, it was just like, I think it was Aunt Jemima. They were like, it's racist to have Aunt Jemima be black. And I'm like, why? And, and, I, and I think they did the same thing with Uncle Ben. And it's like, why? And I don't know about Aunt Joanna, but I, I looked into Uncle Ben, and there's absolutely nothing remotely racist about the story of Uncle Ben's rise. <laughs> what was another thing? Oh, people got all up in arms about the term master bedroom. Master bedroom. That is a that is a forbidden term because it's it it springs to mind the idea of the of the master slave owner, and the his living quarters. So, master bedroom is now a a, a term that's poo pooed. You're not supposed to say master bedroom, even though the term master bedroom didn't even exist during slave time. It was it was a term that was invented, I think, by Sears. It was rather Sears and Montgomery Ward. It was like one of their catalogs, and they referred to the main bedroom in a house. I think everyone can agree that there's the main bedroom in the house. It's usually the bigger one with better windows and a better bathroom. Everyone can agree with that. <laughs> There's you, most houses and apartments have one room, one bedroom that's better than the other one. And let's just say it was Sears, okay? But so Sears recognized this and re, and referred to furniture and beddings that need to be in that room specifically and they refer to it as the master bedroom. So really it was it was a it was a marketing tool to sell bed sheets. Okay, it had nothing to do with slaves. Unfucking believable. <laughs> All right. Um anyways, my breakfast with Blassie, I'll just gonna get through this real quick. Uh, it was basically a spoof sort of of my dinner with Andre and it was starring Andy Kaufman, deceased comedian, Andy Kaufman, who you may know from, uh, he was on the television show taxi. He was played by, uh, Jim Carrey in the film, uh, man on the moon, which is an okay movie. Um, I don't know. Jim Carrey's face is just like, no matter how, no matter uh, maybe Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind. It's like I think the director was like, "Don't emote with your face at all, at all. Be dead faced. We don't need you to have Jim Carrey rubber face. Okay, just be dead faced." Um, but Man on the Moon, there was like so many like Jim Carrey like moments that kind of took me out of the movie. But um, but I mean, I I respect who Andy Kaufman was and what he did for like comedy and shit like that. But and I like that he fucking dipped into fucking pro wrestling back when pro wrestling was pro wrestling, and like I, I thought that was fucking pretty cool. But didn't they do like a documentary? It was like, I think it was called Jim and Andy. And I remember seeing the trailer, and I think I read a couple reviews on it. And it's basically like, oh, God. It's so douchey. It makes my skin crawl. It, it's Okay, from what it sounded like, it sounded like the uh, Jim Carrey went into this, like, Daniel Day-Lewis level of method acting where he... Was like I'm Andy Kaufman, twenty four hours a day. I need everyone on the set to refer to me as Andy. And it's like you're not that good of an actor, dude. <laughs> like you're just not. And like the fact that you allowed a documentary about your method acting to become Andy Kaufman is cringy and douchey. Okay, Jim Carrey. Okay. Do you understand? I don't know. Jim Carrey is just like his shit did not age well. I will say that. Um, hold on. What do you want? My dog doesn't like when doors are closed, and she'll scratch on the door, and then she'll just look at me. I'm like, "What do you want?" Door's open now. You want to know what I'm doing in here? I'm not beating off. I've beat off in front of you a million times. Why would I I hide that? Because I don't want you coming in here and coughing. Okay? Because you have a collapsed trachea and your coughing distracts me from the podcast. Do you understand? I will say, I don't know who put it out. I saw some documentary. It was basically about um, Jim Carrey's painting career <laughs> you're watching this troubled millionaire just in this absurdly gigantic art studio just painting I will say Jim Carrey's paintings aren't bad you know I was like really a fucking documentary about Jim Carrey's fucking paintings are you serious fuck that shit and then I watched it and I was like ah, Jim Carrey actually has some painting talent You know, I mean, I guess it's subjective Art's subjective, but you know, when I looked at his paintings, I was like, Oh, that's not bad. Um, you know, compared to, I don't know, other famous people who fancied themselves painters like, uh, Lars Ulrich, (laughs) his paintings suck. Um, Hunter Biden, I don't know. If anybody out there wants to buy me an original Jim Carrey painting, I'll I'll hang it up in my uh hang it up in my uh, house somewhere. Okay, how about that? Anyways, um uh, the my breakfast with Blassie is uh, Andy Kaufman and former wrestler turned wrestling manager classy Freddie Blassie. And if you're you know I don't know if you're like a, a well-read his, uh like wrestling fan, you'll know who classy Freddie Blassie is. Or if you're just old like me, you'll know who classy Freddie Blassie is. But it's um, Andy Kaufman had this whole thing where he would do, he would actually perform in professional wrestling matches. And, but his whole thing is he would wrestle women. He wouldn't wrestle men. He only wrestled women and every match he would just beat he would just beat woman after woman. He'd beat all these fucking women. And he basically started this angle with this wrestler who, if you're a wrestling fan, you know who I'm talking about. If you're not a wrestling fan, you're who I'm talking to. There was this guy from Memphis who was like the most famous wrestler ever to come out of Memphis. And his name was Jerry, the King Lawler. And he was the King of Tennessee and King of Memphis. And, um, Basically, they started a feud where Andy Kaufman, like him and Andy Kaufman, I think, what should I call they, they had a wrestling match, and Jerry Lawler's like, well, I can beat you with one hand tied behind my back. And Andy Kaufman's like, fine, I'll wrestle you. And then um, he's like, you got to have one hand, uh, one hand tied behind your back. And when we start the match, you have to let me put you in a headlock. (laughs) Oh, wrestling's fucking great. So they do that, and um, Jerry Lawler back body drops him and pile drives him, and um, the angle is he broke Andy Kaufman's neck. So they started this big wrestling feud. Very entertaining. It's in the fucking Man on the Moon movie, if you've seen that. But uh Andy Kaufman and Classy Freddie Blassie basically they, they go to Sambos and they sit down, they have breakfast with each other. And it's just they're having this sort of conversation and along the way, like, you know, there's like a table of women next to him who are just like, Oh, hey, aren't you you know, aren't you Andy Kaufman and whatever? Can I get an autograph? And Andy Kaufman's like, I I'm you know, I don't I don't want to do any autographs, I'm kind of eating right now, can you not bother me and stuff? And all this stuff is staged, by the way. Like, um, what's his face? Fuck, Bob Zmuda, who is, I think, played by... who played Bob Zmuda in Fucking Man on the Moon. I think it was, like... Uh, not James Gandolfini. That other guy with a really italian sounding name. The guy from American Splendor. And Woman in the Water, or Lady in the Water. The guy's name, I can't remember right now. He was in it. Um, but it's like this it's all improvised and it's, it's mildly amusing, especially if you know who those, the two guys are. And, um, one of the women, uh, there was like a table full of women and <laughs> they get into an argument with him. And Andy says a bunch of, uh, misogynistic sexist shit to him because I was his wrestling character essentially because his whole thing is he wrestled women and, um, that's how you get heat in the wrestling business. So, um, one of the women was actually, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her uh, name correctly. Her name was, uh, Lynn Margyles. I'm just going to go with that. Lynn Margiles. uh, who is, uh, Andy Kaufman's real life girlfriend. Maybe they were married. Maybe it was his wife, but, um, she was actually paid by uh, Courtney Love in the movie Man on the Moon. And um, Courtney Love allegedly uh, hired El Duce to kill Kurt Cobain. So look at that. I circled it right back around to uh, the El Duce tapes. And uh, Courtney Love had a very small part in a movie called Sid and Nancy, which was directed by Alex Cox, who directed the movie I want to talk about today, which is 1984's Repo Man and Repo Man directed by Alex Cox and produced by Michael Nesmith. If uh, Michael Nesmith was a guitar player, singer songwriter guy, but he he's well known for being in the band, the monkeys you know, um, last train to Clarksville and Daydream Believer and shit. I, I when I grew up, I was a big fan of the Monkees because the Monkees were like reruns of their TV show was on all the time. Like, <laughs> so I, I timed my adolescent life, my, you know, when I was in the single digits, like when when does uh, the Monkees TV show come on and and. Michael Nesmith actually uh, he passed away. He died in uh, this, well, he died a month ago. He died a month ago in December. So December 10th of 2021, Michael Nesmith uh, passed away at the age of 78. And he was actually born in Houston. He was a Texas guy and he was raised in Dallas. And a lot of people don't know this, but uh, Michael Nesmith actually invented what would later become MTV. So in case you're wondering, how did MTV become a thing? Uh, it was all Michael Nesmith. It was his creation. He basically created a prototype um, that he sold to... Who did he sell it to? He, I think he sold it to Time Warner or some other giant fucking company like that. And then they uh ended up turning that into MTV. They took that template and uh created MTV. Very interesting. And here's a random fact. That Michael Nesmith's mother actually invented liquid paper. Or as some of us may uh know it as whiteout. And uh his his mom invented it when she was like a teenager. She was like a child when she invented uh Liquid paper, so, yeah. Creative family. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, Repo Man. My God. How do you even... How do you even describe this movie to anybody? It's There's so much... There's so much shit going on in this movie. Uh, like, thematically. There's so many different types of things going on that it's amazing that it somehow works. It's like, it's like, it's it's like this weird punk rock sci-fi movie that has action and it has threat of nuclear war. It has this sort of, um, satirical almost they live Reagan era uh paranoia and, and you know, it's got like this sort of like like atomic age like cold war fear you know like s- swirling around it and all of that is sort of like built into Basically, this teenager who gets tricked into ultimately becoming a a repo man, and I don't know how Alex Cox pulled it off, but it fucking works, and the movie's absolutely brilliant and it's very entertaining and it's it's got very good rewatchability and um not only the I have a copy of the the Criterion collection um Repo Man so I got a nice clean version but also if, if you can get a hold of and I there's ways of getting a hold of it but if you have ever seen the the television version of Repo Man they're like cleaned up for TV edited version of Repo Man that's actually entertaining it's a whole it's entertaining in itself cuz they the way they edited all of the curse words is so silly. It just makes the movie. I want to say it makes the movie better, but it makes an alternate version of the movie that is also entertaining. (laughs) Like every time someone says, um, motherfucker, they say, uh, what do they say? They say like melon flipper or, (laughs) um, What do they say? Oh yeah. They say melon farmer. So every time they say fuck, they say flip. So there's a lot of people are saying flip you a lot. And every time someone says motherfucker, they say melon farmer. It's hilarious. Also, there's all these like scenes that are just not in the theatrical cut. Um, so if you're if you're a fan of Repo Man, like find the the TV edit. It's 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 very amusing because you'll see all these scenes you've never seen before, and you see the horrible uh, dubbing over of you know naughty language, and it's amusing. So um, I'll basically explain the I'll explain the general plot. But there's a lot of nuanced stuff going on. Like, just the way people look, how lines are delivered, the soundtrack is fantastic. The title track to it, which is in the opening credits, uh, is a song uh, called Repo Man. And it's performed by Iggy Pop. And it's fucking awesome. And when I... Went to go see Iggy Pop perform. Uh, he did the song Repo Man, and it sounded so amazing live. It was great. So yeah, I did I not only recommend the movie, but you know, soundtrack as well. So if you collect vinyl and you can get like an old copy of the uh, soundtrack, totally pick it up. It's totally worth it. But I'm so I'm just gonna give you sort of an overview of the plot, but you know and I'll probably be giving some things away, but it's, it's, it doesn't really matter because it's like, you have to see the movie and how it plays out and how the performances, uh, you you have to see the performances and uh, like, I can't express how good the performances are. So, so you have Emilio Estevez and Harry Dean Stanton, and I'm a big Harry Dean Stanton fan. He's, he was, uh, how might you know Harry Dean Stanton? Well, he was in, uh, he was an alien. He was in the first alien film, and he was the character of Brett. And, uh, it's like him and Yafa Kodo were like homies and shit. Actually, I have a very, very good replica of Harry Dean Stanton's, uh, character Brett's hat. He, is wearing in the movie aboard the US CSS ship Nostromo. It's one of my favorite hats. So, yeah, you know, also, if you've ever seen Wild at Heart, for all you David Lynch fans, another movie that I highly recommend. That's fucking awesome. Um Wild at Heart, Terry D. Stanton is plays a rather subdued uh, character in that, but he's, he's brilliant in it. So repo man, it basically starts off in the desert. Uh, I believe it's in New Mexico and a motorcycle cop pulls over this swerving 1964 Chevy Malibu speeding, swerving in the road. Police, uh, police officer pulls over the character of J. Frank Parnell, and I believe he was, like, a a nuclear physicist or something. Like, he invented the neutron bomb or some shit. <laughs> like, but he was, like, crazy, you know. Um, pulls him over. is like, uh, what's in your trunk? And he's like, oh, no, you don't want to look in the trunk. And the uh, policeman's like, give me your keys. Policeman's opens up the uh, trunk. And this blinding light blasts out of the trunk and it turns the the cop into a uh, into a skeleton and then vaporizes him into dust and all that's left is his uh, boots his boots are still standing and, and smoldering and smoking the the cop is just completely vaporized Trunk slams closed, and then J. Frank Parnell drives away. And that's sort of the opening of the movie. And then the movie cuts to the character of Otto, played by Emilio Estevez. Emilio Estevez fucking was crushing it in that like five years between uh, Repo Man and... I guess for some of you nostalgic people out there who love the mighty ducks movie, like, but basically between repo man and mighty ducks, like he made a lot of good shit. He made both the young gun movies. He did the breakfast club. That was the movie he did immediately after repo man. Um, if you're a fan of St. Elmo's fire, (laughs) he was in that, you know, yeah, fucking uh Emilio Estevez was fucking killing it. But um so Emilio Estevez is a uh punk rocker guy and he works at uh this grocery store with his uh, and he's you the scene opens up where he's like putting prices with a little price tag gun and he's sitting there with his coworker and uh Kevin who looks like um it looks like that dude, Andrew, from the all gas, no Breaks videos. If you know what I'm talking about. Everyone knows all gas, no Breaks at this point, right? He does those really funny videos. He'll go to like. He'll go interview weird people at, uh, you know, like he went to Sturgis and he went to a alien convention. He went to spring break during covid. Um he, I think he went to Talladega during <laughs> a NASCAR event. Good shit. Um yeah, that dude, uh the all gas no breaks dude, he does uh he's got a new YouTube channel called uh channel five. Channel five action news with Andrew Callahan? I wanna say his last name is Callahan. Yeah, that yeah. Channel five action news was Andrew Callahan. That's so if you're wondering where the all gas, no breaks videos went, like it, all that shit's on YouTube now. And he has a Patreon. So if you want to see any like, you know, shit, that's not for free on YouTube or on Instagram. I don't know if you on on Instagram, like go, go check out fucking homeboys, uh, Patreon I'm drinking out of my Freddy Krueger mug. It's kind of awkward to drink out of, but it looks really cool. So, anyways, uh, <laughs> so Otto, played by uh, Milo Esquives, he's sitting there um, stocking. He's basically just like a like a canned peach display, and he's sitting there with Kevin and what should I call it? They're, um he basically gets rolled up on by his uh, his fucking manager, who is an asshole. his manager rolls up on him to basically bitch about. He's like not properly spacing the cans on the shelf, you know, just a total ball busting micromanaging boss. And, um, but at the same time, you, you know, you realize pretty quickly that Otto is probably not the most diligent employee ever. You know, he's kind of a, he's kind of a fuckhead, (laughs) but he's our hero in this movie. So, you know, you gotta take what you can get. Also, the uh, manager rolls up with uh, this tall security guard guy. It's like Latino-looking gentleman in like a you know like a Renacop outfit and shit. And upon rewatching Repo Man for this episode, I realized who that guy is. He is. Have you ever seen Pee Wee's Big Adventure? Which is one of my favorite movies of all time Peeebe's big adventure is it's a perfect film um, there's this scene where Peeebe goes to the biker bar and um, he ends up getting in trouble with the bikers and then they' they're they're basically they throw him on a pool table and they're holding them down they're gonna decide what they're gonna do with them and there's one biker who's wearing like an eye patch <laughs> That biker with the eye patch is the uh, security guard from uh, Repo Man. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, that's that's cool. I'm I, I'm glad I noticed that." Anyways, I don't know what the dude's name is, but it's but it's that guy. For those of you who've seen Pee uh, Wee's Big Adventure, <laughs> um, so he gets fired from his job, and then he. Uh, what should we call it? He's uh he goes to this like punk rock fucking party. It's at Kevin's house, um, and he's actually kind of a dick to Kevin. Actually, like Otto ends up telling his boss to fuck off, and then um, throws Kevin through a fucking <laughs> display of of cans, which looks looks like it hurt a lot. So, you know. Kevin's kind of, he kind of seems like everyone's punching bag. He's that guy. And um, he goes to a party at Kevin's and um, his girlfriend, I guess it's his girlfriend. I think it's just like someone in his crew that he fucks around with, but she ends up fucking his homeboy. He's basically, she's basically like, go get me a fucking beer. He comes back to the room after getting her beer and she's already like fucking around with like his friend. So he's like, well, fuck this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna dip out. And, um, and then it cuts to him like walking through this really shitty fucking neighborhood looking all mopey and shit. And then, um, the character of Bud Played by uh, Harry Dean Stanton, uh, he like rolls up in a car and he's like, "Hey, yeah, kid," <laughs> and uh, he's fucking Otto's like, "What do you want?" And he's like, uh, "He's like, hey, you want to make ten bucks?" And he's like, "Fuck you, queer," <laughs> which is the most perfect, like angry, like juvenile fucking thing to say. And Harry Dean Sands like it's not like that and he's like my wife is sick and I have to get her to the hospital but her car' is here and I don't want to leave her car in this neighborhood it's a bad neighborhood so he's like if you if I if I pay you some money will you um I'll you know I'll drive my car and then you drive her car and because I want to get the you know her car out of this bad neighborhood can you just just follow me out of this neighborhood and he's just like Otto's like, well, how much? And he's like, uh, he says, I don't know, he was like 15 bucks. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it for less than 20. And then Bud's like, I'll give you 25. And he's like, good, okay, let's go. So they drive out of the neighborhood and Otto ends up going to this place called the uh, Helping Hand Acceptance Corporation, which is basically like this fucking uh, like cement lot with a fucking chain link fence around it um, that's uh the, the basically the headquarters for this repo company so it's just all repo men and all the cars in the yard are all repossessed cars and this is like their headquarters and it's grungy and it's gross and it kind of sucks and whatever and when they get there Otto's unaware that Bud is a repo man and he totally tricked him into helping him repossess a car and he gets in there and he's like, Hey, what about your wife? Isn't your wife supposed to go to the hospital? And he's like, Oh yeah, my my wife. Uh you know what? She can just take the bus. She's a rock. It's like it's such a good line. There is no wife. That's the whole thing. He tricked him. So Bud's like, Well, uh, hey man, like we're always, you know, looking for uh always looking for a few good men, you know, if you ever if you want a job here, like you know, I, you would probably do really well. And Otto's was like, I'm not going to be no fucking repo man. Like I'm not doing that. And the lady at the front desk is like too late. You already are. And just hands him the 25 bucks. And Otto kind of looks at the money and is like, huh, well that was easy. <laughs> you just take someone's car, you know, people haven't been paying their car payments. You just take their fucking car and get paid money for it. That seems cool. But Repo men are, they're you know they're the man you know, and he's not into you know gameful employment or doing some fucking suit and tie worn sellout job in some dingy shithole of a fucking you know office. He's he's you know he's like fuck that, and he takes some money and takes off, and auto um, goes. Takes a bus out to Edge City. I don't know if that's an actual place in L.A. I don't think so. It doesn't sound like it. Edge City. It sounds like a straight-edge, hardcore, like, record label or some shit. I'm I'm sure some corny assholes have used that. Edge City Records. Purveyors of quality, straight-edge, hardcore albums. Anyways, I actually... I think Edge City is... Alex Cox's like production company name or whatever, but he he takes a bus out uh, to his parents' house in Edge City, and his parents are like sitting on the couch and they're watching some like televangelists on the TV, and they're completely like transfixed on the TV, like they're in a trance. And he comes in, and um, what was it like? they don't make it anymore but there was actually, like in the grocery store that he used that Otto used to work at and it's constant it's all over the movie there's like this one generic food brand that I'm I'm forgetting the fucking name of I think I think it's mentioned in the actual it's like I think there's a sign in the movie that talks about I think it's called like Pick Pack or something like that but it's basically the shit where it's like this generic food brand where it's like you buy a six pack of beer. It's a, it's a white can and it says beer on it. Okay. <laughs> you buy, you know, whatever. It's just the most generic labeled shit ever. And Otto comes home to his parents' house and he reaches in the fridge and he pulls out a can that says Food. It's a can that says food on it, and he's just eating whatever the fuck the food is out of the fucking can. Could be dog food for all we know. Who knows? I think in the commentary, I think they said it was like corned beef hash or something. Eating corned beef hash out of a fucking can, that's gross. And I like corned beef hash out of a fucking can, but it's like, fuck, dude. like, heat that shit up in a skillet first. Fuck, it's gross. Anyways, he comes home. And he tells his parents, like, hey, you, you guys uh, – well, his dad, he's like, hey, dad, I, you said if I graduate high school that uh, you'll give me $1,000 to go to Europe. I think that's what he said. And he's like, well, I I really – I've thought about it and I really want to finish school, so um, – but do you think I can get the $1,000 first? <laughs> and his parents are like, "Oh, um, the money's gone." And he's like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> he's like, "Well, we 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 gave the money to the uh, televangelist on the TV screen to send Bibles to. I think he said Ecuador." <laughs> All this time, his parents have not gotten off the couch, and they're still just completely staring dead eyed at the t v and they're talking like they're in a trance like like the, the money is gone son we we gave it to the televangelists to send bibles to Ecuador <laughs> Otto's kind of pissed about this, so he uh it cuts immediately to Otto. <laughs> back. He's like in a car with Bud. So he, which I'm kind of glad they cut all that out. You don't need to see him go back there and be like, actually, I do need a job. Can I, is that repo man job still available? It just cuts to him in a car with Bud. Boom. Lovely. And let me see. They, uh, so basically like Bud is, um, Otto's mentor. He, he basically ta- puts them through the paces and of like this is what it, this is what being a uh, repo man's like. So they, they, you know, they snort a bunch of speed and drink a lot of beer and um, fucking take people's cars who haven't been paying for their fucking bills. You know, seems like a pretty fun job. There was one part where, um, let's see, they 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 introduce uh, a a character named uh Leila who's i guess Otto's love interest in this in this movie but basically after repossessing this red Cadillac from this fucking dude <laughs> It's I don't know. It's weird. They were like, they the dude's car was parked in front of a laundromat, and he's supposed to be like a millionaire, and he's like some guy wearing like a track suit with like a fucking gun holster on his hip and whatever. Um, I don't know. That whole scene's weird, but it's but it's it's cool. Like the laundromat, the laundromat literally looked like this laundromat that was near my old place in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. It was like this laundromat that was basically unattended most of the time there was like there's like a this one like this asian dude who was like the owner but he would show up like in the morning and then he'd show up at night and like close the place but during the day there was like no one in there the only people so eventually crackheads caught on to this And they would just go in there and smoke crack. So anyone who was like new to that area, who's like, oh, look, a laundromat. I'm just going to go wash my clothes over there. I'm going to wash my fleece tech vests and my uh, stance socks. You know, these young, overpaid tech people who thought moving to San Francisco would be this magical experience they they thought that moving to san francisco would be like san francisco would be like mrs doubtfire or full house the opening credits to full house it would just be this beautiful it would just be picnics in the park looking at the painted ladies houses they this that's what they thought it was going to be and it turns out it's not it's it's like the movie repo man <laughs> but that laundromat it was funny, like in the scene where they take the dude's fucking car, there's like kind of like gross people in the fucking laundromat and shit doing their laundry. But there's like a dude just passed out on the floor. And I was like, that's like the laundromat by my old house. Yeah. People would go in there and shoot up and just there would just be like bodies laying on the floor passed out and shit. And fucking that play. I never fucking did my laundry there. Fuck that shit there was like there was always like pimps and prostitutes and shit around there and it was fucking gross it's like wash your own clothes when i moved to san francisco in october of 2000 i was so fucking broke i could barely afford to even pay to use the laundry machine so i just washed my clothes in my fucking bathtub and then got a like Rope. (laughs) It was like, it was like rope used for moving. It was like, uh, like rope. You would use to tie down shit in the back of your truck or something. It was like my roommate and I would stretch the rope across the fucking room. And then we would hang our fucking clothes on it to dry. (laughs) And then, uh, and then one day some dude in the building figured out that, um, how to break into the, the, uh, laundry machines. Cause there'd be like this like metal box contraption built on onto the, the, the washing machine and the dryers. Right. And you would just feed quarters into it. And then he figured out that to get the quarters out, they would, they would, you'd have to access it from the back and he figured out how to like pop the back open and just steal all the fucking quarters. It was genius. And, uh, yeah, he broke into one. <laughs> he broke into one and like split all the quarters with me, which was great. Cause I was broke, like horribly broke. So that was nice of him to do. And, um, It was one of those things where he stole all the quarters and then he knew how to like rig the machine where it would just, you could just wash your clothes for free. So that was rad. And it was weird because if you didn't know the machine would just was free, people would just keep putting money into it. So that was cool. I wonder what that guy's up to. I don't remember his name. I remember what he looked like though. He actually kind of looked like Emilio Estevez and, and Repo Man, ironically. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so Emilio Estevez, auto, takes this um, red Cadillac from this laundromat, and he's driving down the street, and he sees this girl running down the street. This girl in a dress is running down the street, and he's like, Hey, hey, baby, you need a ride? And um, he ends up, she ends up taking a ride with him, and... She basically explains to him that she's being followed by um, she's being followed because she has uh, knowledge of an alien presence on earth she has pictures she shows auto pictures of you know what it looks like it looks like like condoms partially filled with water and tied off with like, with like the heads of shrimp glued onto them and they're just laying in a pile and that's the photo. And so when you see the picture of the aliens and you see Otto's reaction to how ridiculous it is, he's like, what the fuck am I looking at? She's like, those are aliens. And he just busts out laughing. Like you, you get why he's laughing because the photo is preposterous. They could have easily just made, four alien bodies laying on a gurneys or some shit, but no, they made this like undecipherable fucking picture. So, and I've paused the movie and looked at the picture. It makes no sense at all. So yeah, he, uh, ends up dropping her off at work. She works at a place called the United fruitcake outlet. <laughs> and, um, Basically, uh, was it? They have sex in the back of the car. You know, because that's what you do after you meet somebody for five minutes and they give you a ride somewhere. You have to pay them. You have to repay their kindness with premarital, unprotected, vaginal intercourse in the back of a car. That's what you do that's what politeness was back in 1984. So the, the Chevy Malibu, remember the Chevy Malibu, the 64 Chevy Malibu that I mentioned in the beginning, the 64 Chevy Malibu. um, And I think I remember this correctly. Those aliens are inside the trunk of the Chevy Malibu. And they emit a type of, Radiation that is so deadly to human beings that if you're exposed to it, it just evaporates you um, where you stand. So, there is a basically a $20,000 bounty put on the Malibu, and this gets everyone's attention because. You know, it's an older car and all the repo men are kind of perplexed as like that's a lot of money for some old fucking car. So So now everyone wants to try to get a hold of this fucking old car because the you know, the the repo bounty is so fucking high. So they mentioned that they think that the uh the car is connected to some kind of like some sort of, like, drug-related something. I don't understand how that makes a car more valuable, unless it's, like, there's a bunch of drugs in the car or something. I don't know. That's how it's presented, but when you hear it in dialogue form, you're like, sure, maybe that's why the bounty's $20,000, because it's drug-related. I don't know. Anyhow, they... (laughs) So now now every fucking everyone wants to get a hold of this fucking car now and now fucking lila wants a fucking car and she's connected to this uh kind of like clandestine organization of like alien disclosure people that uh well they need to get a hold of the vehicle because they want to just you know tell the world that aliens are real and they have proof that whole sort of thing but there's like these uh government these like uh government people who are after her and after uh Jay Frank Parnell who's driving the Malibu they're they're after all of them cuz they want they want the aliens they want their technology they want whatever the fuck that you can get out of an alien which i always thought was weird if there's aliens on earth like why do you want to capture them that seems dangerous it's like I don't know. That's that just seems arrogant that you can just you think you can just capture a fucking alien and study it. It's like these fucking things probably have fucking time machines. Like you're not you're not fucking capturing these things. Anyways, enough about aliens. So finally, uh, Parnell and his Malibu show up in LA. And you find out that um, you've I mean, there's an attempt made by these like government agent people like he's in a phone booth and he's trying to get a hold of Leela and like they try to run over the they, they run over the phone booth, but he's able to jump out just in time. And before he gets smashed to death and all of these government agent guys who are just dudes in suits with aviator sunglasses. Um, their, their leader is this woman with a, with a metal hand. She has a metal, a single metal hand, which makes you evil. It's like uh Dr. Claw from inspector gadget. You know, he had a, he had metal hands or, uh, or Han, from Enter the Dragon, he was he was an evil bad guy, and he had metal hands. Um, that's how you know someone's evil was when they have hands of steel. That makes sense. So, um, at some point, uh, Parnell shows up. He goes to a gas station, and he gets out to go puke, and depending on what quality version of the movie you have, you might not know that that's what he's doing, but he pulls into this gas station and he looks very, he looks sickly. He looks nauseous. He looks ill. And, um, he walks away from the car and you can you can kind of hear off camera that he went somewhere and vomited and stuff. So this is where, um, whatchamacallit, these, these guys named the Rodriguez brothers, are really, uh, they're in, uh, I mean, this, this is like when they're really introduced. They, as soon as he gets out of his car, the Rodriguez brothers pull up and fucking steal the car. Cause they're basically the competition to, uh, bud and auto and everybody else at, uh, what's the name of their fucking company? They helping hand acceptance corporation. (laughs) which is just the repo company there. So Rodriguez brothers get the fucking car, which is that, I mean, that's not good for our heroes because that was a $20,000 bounty on that fucking car. And now the Rodriguez brothers have it. So, so at, um, as soon as Rodriguez, Rodriguez brothers take the car, um, they notice that the car, the trunk is emitting crazy amounts of heat. Like the car is hot as fuck. And they're like, look, let's pull over. Let's go get something to drink. So they pull over. Uh, one of the dudes goes inside to get something to drink. The other dude's on a payphone, And while they're not paying attention to the fucking car, Otto's friends, what was it, Duke, Archie, and Debbie. So Debbie was Otto's girlfriend from the uh, party who ended up um, fucking... Otto's friend named Duke and then their other friend, Archie, who was actually also at the party. He's like in the background. Um, they're like a little punk gang. <laughs> and, um, so Duke and Debbie and Archie are like a, like they're like a little punk gang and they, um, they steal cars, they rob liquor stores and they steal, uh, they <laughs> They steal the Rodriguez's uh, car, which is not really their car, but the Chevy Malibu, Um, they happen to be running by after... Why are they running by? They happen to be running by... Did they rob a fucking store? Is that what they did? Yeah, I, th- I think... I could be wrong. I think they just robbed a store, and they're running by, and they notice that the fucking Malibu is sitting there. Um, with the keys in it. <laughs> and they jump into the car and fucking take off. And the Rodriguez brothers are like, they don't see it happen. The car's already gone. And they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> so their fucking $20,000 fucking car uh, is now gone. And so later on, uh, Parnell somehow, somehow fucking tracks down where uh Debbie, Duke, and Archie parked their parked the Malibu. And he's trying to get into the Malibu and they roll up on him and they're like, Uh what the fuck are you doing? This is our car, and he's like, Oh, that's I could have swore this was my car and they're like, No, this is my car, and and then he basically uh Parnell tricks them into opening the trunk. Cause we all know what happens when you open the trunk, bright light, boom, you get vaporized. So he's like, uh, what's in your trunk? And they're like, what do you mean? And they're like, he's like, what are you afraid to open your own fucking trunk? Duke is like, I'm not afraid of fucking nothing. I'm the head of a punk gang. Do I look like I'm a fucking afraid to open up my own trunk? And, um, he goes to open the trunk and like Debbie stops him. And then Archie, who's like the dumb one in the fucking group is like, uh, well, I'll open it because I'm Archie and I'm fucking awesome. And he opens up the trunk and then boom, Archie gets fucking vaporized. So Duke and Debbie see this and they're like, fuck this car. Fuck this Parnell guy. Let's get the fuck out of here. We just watched our friend get fucking turned into dust. Uh, Let's get the fuck out of here. And they say an awesome line before they take, (laughs) before they take off into the night. And there's a lot of good one-liners in this movie. There's a lot of them. It's like, it's like the big Lebowski. There's like tons of quotable shit in this movie before they take off. They're like, yeah, let's get out of here. Let's, let's go get sushi and not pay for it. Fucking brilliant line. So Parnell gets the car back. <laughs> and Man. because Parnell uh, needs to uh, link up with uh, Leila and the, the fucking fruitcake people. Because they're all these, like, you know, secret uh, alien disclosure people. So he's trying to meet up with them. So eventually, a long story short, uh, Otto ends up spotting the Malibu and sprints after it. Parnell stops the car, lets him in, and he's driving, and he's just like, hey, man. And by the way, Like Otto is basically uh, completely oblivious to the whole like alien in the trunk fucking thing that's going on, and another scene that has a lot of really good, uh, a lot of good memorable quotes and dialogue in it. Parnell's basically like he talks about uh he talks about the neutron bomb. He's like he's like it kills people but it leaves buildings standing and. Uh, it's like, have you ever felt like your, like your mind is eroding and says something like that. It's it's good shit. So basically he's been driving around in this fucking car. That's just emitting radiation for God knows how long. And Parnell just starts bleeding out of his nose, head hits the steering wheel and they, they almost crash. So, you know, uh, auto gets out of the car grabs Pernell's body and just puts it on a on a bus bench and and then just drives away which that really, and it's in a fucking ghetto as fuck area and that's another thing like really fucked areas like like those like neighborhoods that are that shitty you actually If you've been to areas like that, you look around you're like, yeah, this seems like a pretty good place to just drop off a dead body. And no one would really notice. And that's what he does. He just kind of props Parnell up on this, you know, bus bench and then takes off in the car. And (laughs) so there was this whole thing where like Otto and Bud got into this. They got into this shouting match with each other and they kind of split off like they had a little argument and. They eventually ended up like kissing and making up. So they go to this, they go to this liquor store, and who shows up but uh, Debbie, Duke, and Archie? They they're there to rob the place. Well, not Archie. <laughs> yeah, not Archie because Archie got fucking, um, he got fucking vaporized. But um, Debbie and uh, Duke show up, and um, also. The character of Duke, he was originally supposed to be the Otto character. Like, the, the character of Duke, that guy, his name is actually, his name is Dick Rude, which is a cool name. Dick Rude. Uh, he was, he was kind of like, wrote the original, like, him and Alex Scott, he was kind of, they were like the two guys who were sort of the brain trust behind the story of Repo Man. And he was supposed to play, he was supposed to play the Otto character, but and it ended up going to, uh, West of those. Anyways, they go to uh, Debbie and Duke go to uh, rob the liquor store that uh, Bud and Otto happen to be in, and a fucking shootout happens. Bud pulls out a gun. Debbie has a gun. Duke has a shotgun. Okay, they they pull a gun on the uh, the guy at the front counter. They, I mean, I know I'm gonna get the order wrong, but. <laughs> Very much the end of Reservoir Dogs type of situation where Debbie shoots Bud. Um it looks like he shot him in the ear, but I think he kind of shot him in the side of the head, but it grazed him, like it didn't kill him. And Bud crashes into crashes into some like bottles of like tomato juice or something, and no, it's ketchup, that's what it was. And he hits the floor. And then the the security guard from the grocery store from earlier, the dude from Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he happens to be in the store shopping. Like, he shoots Duke in the chest. Duke shoots him. And Debbie shoots the fucking guy behind the counter because he pulls a fucking gun. So now everyone but Otto and Debbie are shot. And Debbie's like, well, fuck this. I'm out of here. But before she like, she, they could have just had her just run out of the store. And, uh, you know, Otto has his hands up. Cause he's like, fuck this is, she might shoot me. <laughs> he's like, Hey, is there, there's no, there's no chance we can, uh, get back together and have a sexual relationship. Is there, and, and she's like, uh, no, it's, we're probably past that point. He's like, Are you sure I can make you a repo wife. She's like, no. And before she leaves, she just grabs this, like, big bag of popcorn. It's that generic brand that's everywhere in the movie. It just says popcorn on it. And she's like, here. And she just throws the bag at him, and he just, like, catches it. And then she just runs out of the store. So it's just random and weird that she did that. But it's one of those little touches that just makes the movie, like, fun and interesting. Because it's just... Random mundane shit like that. After this bloody broken glass fucking shootout takes place where half the characters die. (laughs) So, yeah, Duke ends up dying on the floor. Bud ends up leaving. Gets rushed to the hospital, right? So, there's a big... There's this whole thing where, like, the government people the government people uh, go after Otto and Leela who are at the hospital visiting Bud and they end up capturing them. And there's a whole thing with that. There's car chases. There's fucking Otto gets fucking tortured and electrocuted. He ends up escaping and there's a whole big, there's a whole thing with that. And then eventually they, uh, You know, they get quartered at the hospital and then everyone takes off. Okay, so I'm just going to skip over a whole bunch of stuff. So basically, the the Malibu ends up back at the the lot. At the uh, Helping Hand Acceptance Corporation, where all the Repo Man work. The car ends up there and uh, Bud is the one who took it there. So in the chaos... Of the government agents trying to track down Bud and Leela and that whole fucking thing. Um, Bud sneaks out of the hospital with a head wound. with a After being shot in the head, you know, he, he sneaks out of the hospital, gets a hold of the Malibu, and takes it down to the uh, the Repo Man spot. And by the time everyone gets there, and I mean fucking everyone in the movie... Goes there because <laughs> at this point everyone wants that goddamn car. Uh, Bud is like sitting in the fucking car with his head wrapped in a bandage, sitting still in his hospital gown. Everyone shows up the 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 evil uh, government agent uh, people. The you know the lady with the metal hand and all of her fucking goons. Like it's like dudes with guns and bio. It, lo- it looks like the, the movie it looks like the front cover of the movie The Crazies. You know, it's like a dude in a fucking biochemical suit with a machine gun. She's you know, she she's rolls she rolls deep. The lady with the metal hand. And then there's the uh there's the the televangelist guy from the TV <laughs> from what his parents are watching. He shows up. Um they they're able to tie all these characters that seem to not have any connection to each other together. And they all end up at this at the fucking repo man lot and at this point the car is glowing bright green like just neon bright, glowing green and no one can approach the car like 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 anyone who gets close like lightning shoots out and just fucking hits the person or just or they get fucking like set aflame <laughs> so no one can really approach the car and only the uh the character of miller who's played by Tracy Walter and Tracy Walter is one of those dudes. Like you see his face. You're like, Oh yeah, I know that guy. He was, uh, he was in Batman, the 1989 Batman with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. He was the character of Bob, you know, Bob gun. You know, he's, he's that guy. And I heard he got that role because, uh, when Jack Nicholson, uh, when he was, he, he insisted, he's like, if I'm going to be in this movie, my friend, Tracy Walter has to be in the movie. So you need to write a character for him. And that was the character of Bob. So there you go. Tracy Walter has easily the best lines in this fucking movie. Easily. He has a whole thing where he's like, he has this famous scene. Everyone knows the scene where it's like him and Emilio Estevez sitting over this barrel and there's burning shit, presumably stuff that was in repossessed cars, clothes and hats and all this random shit. And, I'm sitting there and he's just talking about, uh, there's a lattice of coincidence that lays on top of reality. And it's like, uh, you know, there's, there's weird coincidences. Like, like say you're thinking about a, a plate of shrimp and out of nowhere, someone will say the word plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp. It's like, how does that happen? You know, it's a coincidence, and there's and there's no use trying to find out the reason to the coincidence. It's, and then he goes into this whole thing about how like, you know, uh, he doesn't drive a car because the more you drive a car, the less intelligent you are, and you know, aliens, the u aliens, UFOs, or time machines, and um, anytime someone gets abducted, they get sent to the future and. Like, it's this whole fucking thing. It's it's fucking brilliant. It's it's one of the one of the just standout scenes in the whole fucking movie. Anyways, uh, I didn't mention him earlier, but yeah, he, he fucking the character of Miller played by Tracy Walter. He works at the uh, repo lot, and he just like works on cars and shit. And he's always just completely just greasy and grimy looking, and he's always wearing like a jumpsuit like a Michael Myers fucking jumpsuit. But he seems to have this like weird, I don't know if if it's like ESP or whatever, but he's somehow connected to the aliens in some way. Like he understands the aliens. So all these people who are trying to get near this fucking glowing car, they can't get near it, but he's able to walk right up to it. Oh, by the way, this is after fucking Harry Dean Stanton got out of the fucking car. It's after Bud gets out of the fucking car. And this like cop or SWAT team, or somebody in a fucking helicopter that surrounds the fucking lot shoots fucking Bud. Fucking shoot him. And his dying words were... Well, one of his dying words was um, rather die on my feet than live on my knees. And uh, his other last word was uh, I need a cigarette. You know, it's... You know, the character of Bud, fantastic. And then, uh, so anyways, Miller approaches the fucking car and he gets in. And he looks at Bud and he's like kind of like gestures to him to get in the car, dude, (laughs) get in the fucking car. And um, Leela's like, where are you going? He's like, I'm going to go for a ride in the fucking glowing Malibu. She's like, well, what about our relationship? And he's like not paying attention. He's like, what? (laughs) She says, what about our relationship? And he's like, fuck that. It just leaves. She's like, you're a fucking asshole. Um, even to the very end of the movie, like, Otto is a completely just... He's not even self-absorbed. He's just, like... Just completely, like, doesn't give a fuck about anything. But not in a... Not in like a tactical, like he's, he's not conscious of it. He's just like a fuckhead who's, you know, well, he didn't finish high school. There you go. There's what else, what more do you need to know? Anyways, um, Miller gestures to him, like get in the car, dude. So he fucking gets into the fucking car and then the car starts to levitate. It floats straight up off the ground and it just keeps going and going and going until it's above the fucking skyline. And then, whoosh, it fucking like, takes off. And it's flying around the fucking, uh, flying around LA, around buildings and shit. You know, and, and, and Emilio, <laughs> or Otto rather, and uh, Miller, they take off into space. And they vanish. Where do they go? I don't know. We don't know it's a mystery. And that's the end of Repo Man. And it is it's one of my favorite movies, like, you know, it's 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 up there. It's it's aged incredibly well. I've been watching it my entire life and you know, anyone with a sense of humor, I would say watch it. You want a really good double feature? Watch fucking Pee-wee's Big Adventure and uh and Repo Man. That's a that is that is a solid evening of movies okay you can take it you can take to the bank and check out the uh check out the uh soundtrack as well the repo man soundtrack's really good anyways i wanted to uh keep this episode really short and uh i did not um i did not uh do that <laughs> but uh yeah i'm just gonna uh cut it off right there guys thank you so much for listening. Uh, check out Repo Man. It's one of my favorite movies. It's fucking awesome. All the other movies I mentioned, uh, the El Duce tapes. You know, if you're into the mentors, watch the, El, you know, the El Duce tapes. I can't see any reason why anyone would want to watch it. If you, you know, you don't have a morbid curiosity about the mentors and uh, my dinner with Andre. It's in the Criterion collection. So is Repo Man, by the way. So, you know, if you want to watch two aging bald guys talk about uh, their philosophies of life while eating dinner. Uh, Check that out. But that's it. Thanks for listening. This is Skeleton Factory Podcast, rescuing your movie night one movie at a time. This is Adam. Uh, You can keep uh, track of me on Instagram at skeleton underscore factory. And I will see you all next time. Bye-bye.